All right, we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this recording, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And we've been building up to this point in the message of Hebrews for some time. The message we're going to really begin unpacking in detail for the next several chapters, really, is the significance of Jesus' high priesthood and his work as high priest. And as I noted, we've been building up to it for a while. Jesus' high priesthood was first mentioned in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. There, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brothers, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So that's Hebrews 2, 17. Well, then again... In chapter 3, verse 1, his high priesthood is just mentioned in passing, Jesus as the apostle and high priest of our calling. Then in 4.14 and following, the author takes up the theme of Jesus' high priesthood and begins to develop it more fully in that section there in 4.14 through 5.10. And in that context in 4. Uh, 14 through 510, he quotes from Psalm 110 verse 4 about the Messiah going to be a priest from the order of Melchizedek. And he ends the section in chapter 5 verse 10 by saying that Jesus was designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he notes that he wants to say more about that, but it's difficult to understand. So he pauses for a while to challenge them on their maturity in the faith. And so you have that long exhortation from 511 through 620. So that's all the setup. That's the context that leads up to this moment. And he ends that exhortation in chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, by saying, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and reliable, and one which enters within the veil. He'll explain that in chapter 9 and 10, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he wraps back around to where he left off in chapter 5, verse 10. So as I noted, we he's been building up to where we're at in chapter 7 for quite some time, hinting at, developing the initial bits about, uh, quoting the passage that now is going to become central, Psalm 110, verse 4, all about Jesus being the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so now here we are. He's ready to explain a bit more about Melchizedek and this high priesthood. And so in chapter 7, 1 through 10, the subject of this recording, he is going to focus on specifically who Melchizedek is and what's significant about his high priesthood. So this is like part one of his discussion of Melchizedek's high priesthood. Part two will come in chapter 7, verse 11 through 25, where he'll then draw out the implications regarding this uh, as it pertains to Jesus himself. So, chapter 7, 1 through 10, focuses on the actual story of Melchizedek and why it matters and why Psalm 110 verse 4 would quote it and as, a, as pertinent to the Messiah. So, this section, verses 1 through 10, has two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 simply recalls the story by summary of Melchizedek from Genesis 14. And the key fact in that summary is 
a perpetual priesthood. That's what Psalm 110 verse 4 capitalizes on. So 1 through 3 simply recalls the story of Melchizedek. Verses 4 through 10 then begins to draw out a few implications from Melchizedek's interaction with Abraham. And all of that is to make this simple point that Melchizedek's high priesthood is superior to Levi's high priesthood. And that then will become the focus of chapter 7, 11 through 25. All right, so let's jump in and look at uh, the story of Melchizedek. What is significant about Melchizedek and what does that mean for his priestly line? Well, let me read verses 1 through 3 in total, and then I'll go back through and just note a few things about it. Verses 1 through 3 recalls and summarizes the story of Melchizedek from the Old Testament. And here's what it says. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And so notice how it ends. He remains a priest perpetually. That is the key fact he's building off of because that's what's highlighted in the quote from Psalm 110 verse 4 that started this whole discussion of Melchizedek way back in chapter 4. And so the author here in verses 1 through 3 is simply summarizing the Old Testament story and reflecting on a, key, a few key details of that story that he sees as important and pertinent for making the point he wants to make. And as I noted, this all is motivated by that quote from Psalm 110 verse 4 that he quoted in chapter 4 of Hebrews, which says that the Messiah will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So he now is going to I just summarize the story and then begin to draw this out. Where is that story found? Well, it's found in Genesis 14. It would actually be worth your time to pause this recording at this moment and just go back and re, uh, read the story in Genesis 14 real quick so that you have it in mind and you can hear what the uh, author of Hebrews is reflecting on. Uh, the fact is we know very little about Melchizedek. He shows up only there in Genesis 14 for a brief moment. And then you get that quote about him that is applied to the Messiah in Psalm 110. And then we have this little bit taking those two bits from the Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, and showing what they mean regarding the Messiah now that Messiah has come. That's all we have about Melchizedek in the entire Bible. The gist of the story about Melchizedek and what we know about him is this. He is the king of Salem. He met Abraham and Abraham's uh, militia after they had routed four other kings. His parentage is unknown. And at Hebron, he gave bread and wine to Abraham and he blessed Abraham. Abraham then gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe from the spoils of war. Abraham had actually sworn not to keep any of the spoils for himself. You can read that in Genesis 14. That's pretty much the significant things about Melchizedek and the story there in Genesis 14. So let me just read back down through 
verses 1 through 3 here of Hebrews chapter 7 and make some comments as we go to clarify uh, the significant details that the author of Hebrews draws out. So he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Salem is a shortened version of Jerusalem. And so he was the king of the city-state of the city of Jerusalem in his day. He's also described as priest of the Most High God. And it's those two titles, those two roles that he plays, king and priest, that actually allows him to be connected to the Messiah in Psalm 110, as well as here in Hebrews, because uh, the Messiah is both king and priest. Um, That wasn't typical in Israel, but it was true of Melchizedek. And so that's a significant little detail he draws out here. And then he recalls the story how Abraham met him and how Abraham paid a tenth or a tithe of the spoils of war. Um, And the author will actually draw out an implication from that little detail below. So hold on to that and we'll look at the the significance of that in verses 4 and following. Um, he, he notes that by the translation of his name, he is king of righteousness. His name is a compound word in Hebrew. Uh, you can see it if you just split Melki and Zedek. Zedek is the uh, word for righteousness in uh, Hebrew. And then the Melki is from the root word for king. So he's king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem. And if you translate the word Salem, it's you can see the word shalom in it, right? The Hebrew word for peace. And so he's also the king of peace. Both of these, king of righteousness and king of peace, the author uh, finds some point of connection with Jesus, which is why he notes them here. All right. And so he continues in verse three to draw attention to a really important detail Uh, that just is the way Melchizedek appears in the Genesis record. He just appears with no family record, um, no lineage. He just is there on the scene, and then he's gone. That's it. So that detail is actually important for why he's quoted in Psalm 110 and what it it means with regarding the Messiah. So verse 3 says, without father, without mother, without genealogy. Notice that. That's the idea. He has no family lineage. Big deal in the ancient Near East, big deal in the Jewish uh, culture in which family records were well-kept and well-known and super important. He doesn't have any. He doesn't show up in the record with any lineage. There's genealogies all through the early chapters of Genesis, but none for Melchizedek. Where does he fit in? Which, which lineage does he come from there in Genesis? He's not mentioned in any of the, the genealogies there. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And the idea of without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither beginning, neither end of days, like we don't have to take that literally. I mean, it could be, right? But... Um, It's an argument from silence. There's no mention of Melchizedek's lineage or even his death in Genesis. Um, And the idea, in fact, Jews actually use this phrase without father, without mother for persons whose parentage is unlisted. 
they even used it sometimes of proselytes because they had become Jewish. And so now it's like they don't have any family lineage because now they're like a Jewish person, right? And so the idea really is, is that his parentage was unknown and his death is not mentioned. And so the omission of this information in Genesis becomes a type for the Messiah in Psalm 110, where it said that the Messiah will be a priest for forever. Now, could this be literal? Well, it's possible, right? Could be literal, and it actually led to all sorts of debate, even in Jewish history and Christian history. Was this like a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ and all that? It's, that's all possible, right? Could be. But that's really not what the significance of the language is. And notice what the author of Hebrews says in verse 3. He says that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God, not vice versa. It's not, it's not like he is the Son of God. It's not like the Son of God was made like him. It's that he here in the story appears in such a way that he can be a type, a pattern for what's going to be literally true of the Messiah. So what's true in narrative form for Melchizedek, he is a he has no lineage and there's no record of his death is true of the Messiah in fact, in reality. So Melchizedek in the story is like a perpetual priest. He just shows up, there he is. What's that becomes a type of what's true of the Messiah in fact, in reality. And so that's his summary of the highlights from the Melchizedek story. Now what the author of Hebrews does is in verses 4 through 10, he goes on to draw out some implications of Melchizedek as king and priest in relation to the priesthood of Levi. And the priesthood of Levi is the priesthood commissioned by the old covenant, the old covenant law. All of this is he's going to continue to build on in the chapters to follow. In fact, Jesus' high priesthood and his work as high priest is really going to dominate uh, the rest of the explanation sections of the book of Hebrews. And so we're now really in the great heart of the point the author of Hebrews wants to make. So here in verses 4 through 10, what are some of these initial implications about Melchizedek concerning the priesthood of Levi? Here's what he says. Now, just observe this, he says. Now observe how great this man, that is Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choice of spoils. I mean, Abraham's the patriarch. He's like the founding father of the Jewish people, right? He is the chosen one through whom the promise of God is going to be carried forward. And that's how great he is. But notice, Abraham gave the choices of the spoils to Melchizedek. So in view of how great Abraham was considered to be, uh, well, think about then how great Melchiz Melchizedek must be if Abraham actually paid him a tithe. Not only that, but under the old covenant, the covenant through Moses, who was supposed to collect tithes? Who was support, supported by the tithes? Well, it was the priests and the Levites. So what does the fact that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek suggest in regard to the Levitical priesthood? Well, that's where the author of Hebrews goes next in verse 5. And so he says, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth, that is a tithe, from the people. That is, from their countrymen, although they are descended from Abraham. And so the, the 
Levitical priesthood is supposed to collect tithes from their fellow countrymen, the, the Jews, and they're all descended from Abraham. But, verse 6, the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, he's not part of their lineage, he's not part of their countrymen, we have no idea where he came from, right? The one whose genealogy is not traced from them, he actually collected a tenth from Abraham, and then he blessed the one who had the promises. So, to summarize just the key facts, the priests collect tithes, the priests are descended from Abraham, Melchizedek is not descended from Abraham, and Melchizedek actually collected tithes from Abraham himself, and he blessed Abraham. So what does all that mean? Well, look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. This is the first key thing to think about. That's the way blessings work, right? The, the greater person blesses the lesser person. It's just the, the way uh, blessings worked in the ancient world. Well, Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, so Melchizedek must be greater than Abraham. Not only that, but what about tithes? Well, look at verse 8. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. What is he getting at in verse 8? Well, the mortal men are the priests and Levites. You have an ongoing line from Aaron and onward, clear down to their own day, right? So you have this ongoing line of priests who die, and thus they have to get replaced. They have to, right? So in this case, mortal men, people who die, receive tithes, the priests and the Levites. But in that case, I, that is the case of Melchizedek, um, with Melchizedek, it's just him. And Genesis never mentions his death, so it's as if he had a perpetual life. And Psalm 110 verse 4 capitalizes on this feature of the story of Melchizedek. That's his, where he gets his idea of the point about a perpetual priesthood. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, did he really? We don't know. The story is actually quite brief. There's no mention of his family of origin. There's no mention of his death. So in the narrative, it's, as I've noted, like he just appears and remains. All of which is what leads to Psalm 110 verse 4, applying him as a type to the Messiah. And as I noted, it's also what led to all sorts of speculation about him among uh, later Jews and Christians. But the point Psalm 110 is making by referencing back to the story is that he is at least a type or a pattern for the Messiah who will be both king and priest, just like he was, and whose priesthood will actually and literally be forever. That's the point Psalm 110 makes when it quotes, uh, when it says that about Melchizedek. And so in this regard, his priesthood is superior. Uh, the Levitical priesthood, well, there was many of them because they died. With regard to the Melchizedek priesthood, there's only one and there's no record of his death. And so now the author of Hebrews will draw all of this out in relation to Jesus very shortly in the next section. But before he applies it directly to the Messiah, Jesus, the author of Hebrews will now draw one final implication from the story of Melchizedek. And so take a look at verses 9 and 10. He says, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, has paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his forefather, 
Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. So, since the Jewish priests were descendants of Abraham, and since Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, it's like those who were supposed to receive tithes, the Levites, paid tithes, which once again points to Melchizedek's superiority. All of this is really aiming in that direction. Melchizedek and his priesthood is superior to Levi and his priesthood. And that's the subtle shift now we have made as we've drawn out the implications of the story. We've shifted from focusing really on Abraham, who originally met Melchizedek, to Levi and his priesthood, who headed up the priesthood, which will be compared to Melchizedek's in the paragraphs that follow. And so, what's the significance of Psalm 110 verse 4 concerning the Messiah being a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Well, the significance is that his priesthood is superior to Levi's priesthood, and that's evidenced into the whole details of the Melchizedek story. How Abraham paid tithes to him, how in a certain sense, then the Levitical priest paid tithes to him, how Melchizedek blessed Abraham and thus passed on a blessing down the line. All of that demonstrates Melchizedek's superiority, and thus that implies that his priesthood is superior to the Melchizedek priesthood. And in the paragraphs that follow, the author of Hebrews will lay all of that out to help us see the significance of Psalm 110 verse 4 with relation to Jesus the Messiah, how he's a superior high priest to the uh, priesthood of Aaron and Levi, and his work as high priest is superior to theirs. All of that is going to be at the heart of the next handful of chapters of the book of Hebrews. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the listener's commentary on the New Testament. Just a couple notes before we leave this recording. The first is I am building out what I am calling a Bible study hub over at the listener's commentary website, listenerscommentary.com. It's a great way for you to study the Bible for yourself while at the same time supporting this ministry. It will include all six of my current online courses and any future courses I add to it. It has uh, already quite a bit of bonus material beyond the audio, charts, maps, pictures, uh, and other resources. And I'm going to be constantly adding more and more material to that that'll help you dig into some of these individual texts and study them more fully for yourself. And so if you want to support this ministry and you want to dig into the Bible uh, more deeply for yourself, the Study Hub is a great way to do that. And also, if you want to support this ministry, you can do so simply by setting up a one-time or a recurring donation through um, the donation portal at listenerscommentary.com as well. All donations there are received in partnership with World Family Mission. Thanks a ton to all of you who already support this ministry. Uh, this ministry is simply made possible by your prayers and your generosity. So thank you so much. God bless.